Today's episode is both a meaningful one and also a personal one. You only have to look around at current events to get easily overwhelmed. There's challenges every single day, and then there's some really, 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 really big challenges, such as the current events that we're living in today. And as someone who is a proud Jew, certainly some of the current events right now, both the actual events happening and also the response of the world as it's happening and afterward can be difficult to process. I'm a million miles away. So how much more so for someone who lives there in the Middle East? And it's even more so than that, someone who has been on the front lines and seeing things that nobody can unsee. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of hell, how do you stay positive? How do you actually prepare before going into it, during it, after it? And on top of that, to have uh, passion, have energy. In this episode, we're going to have someone who has done just that. So whether you are in it, in the epicenter, or you deal with some things on your own, I very much think that you'll be able to pull some resources, some inspiration from it, even a little bit of levity, which is important. So I really encourage you to watch and listen to this episode. This episode has been made possible by our very own sponsorship, CBT Baltimore. We will support this endeavor. We, as a practice, really support the mission of disseminating and sharing meaningful, helpful content for the public. We're very proud to do that. If you do enjoy, please take just one moment, whether you're watching this on YouTube, like and comment. If it's on social media somewhere, like, share. If you're on some podcast platform, take just a minute, put a comment, rate it. It's all really, really helpful. We do this strictly as a passion project. So please help us reach more people. This is Mental All right, welcome back, everybody, to Mental Filter, where we have the opportunity to talk to interesting people about interesting things, all through the lens of mental health. As you heard in the introduction, this this is a very timely, very unique topic that if we had five hours, I'm sure we can get into, but it has a lot to do with both current events, global events, but I think even more importantly, on a individual level, I think everyone will be able to relate to sort of how we deal with things that maybe we have a hard time wrapping our heads around, whether it's uh, tragic events, horrifying events, loss, and how do we like process? How do we deal with these things? And I'm very, very grateful that for today, we have a co-host who can really, really speak to that to the best of his abilities. So, you know, strap in. And I will allow my co-host, Arky, can you please introduce yourself to everybody? All right. Thank you very much. My name is Arky Stamen. And for the past 120 days, I've been a soldier in the IDF in a very special unit. We'll get into what that is very soon. But there's a guy behind the uniform. The guy behind the uniform is originally from Baltimore, spent most of his life in Baltimore till 18 years old. That was when I went to TA, for those who know of it, and Beth DeFilla, and came to Israel in 2011, made Aliyah 
as an 18 year old, 19 year old that just wanted to do the army and be as Israeli as possible. Um, I joined the paratroopers in 2011. When I finished, uh, got engaged, got married, moved up to Haifa, lived in Haifa for five years with my wife who was studying at the Technion at the time. And for the last eight years, I've been a tour guide, mainly focusing on families with kids, making Israel fun, igniting the passion and love for Israel for families who come and want an unforgettable experience. And so that was what I was doing up until October 7th. And then kind of everything, everything changed uh, on October 7th. And I've been in the army for the past 120 days. And I'm actually, next week will be my first truly week off from the army back at home for good until the next time I get called up. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. So I'm sure all the local people in Baltimore are appreciating that you're on being a Baltimorean, still maybe licking their wounds on the Ravens. I, I can say that not being a, um, I'm from Chicago. I don't have much to brag about being a Bears right. fan. However, you know, <laughs> I, I wasn't hurt. <laughs> so, so I actually had my parents and my brother came down to the South on the Gaza border and we watched the game together. They brought us wings on my army base. We all had our uniforms on. I had a Lamar Jackson jersey over my uniform. And it's like, it doesn't matter if you're in a war in Israel as a complete Israeli, I will still have the love for football and the Ravens and can't take it out of me, you know? Those things should not be underestimated. Those things are really, really valuable. You know, so like you said, up until 120 days ago, you know, things are like cruising along. So I know as we have this conversation, I, I imagine maybe there's some things that you're not able to share, or I don't know if, you, if you're not comfortable sharing by all means, but can you tell everyone a little bit, what were those first, I guess, those first moments, first hours, how you got, how you learned about it, and then what you got like pulled into? Right. So I've been in Miluim, which is reserve duty, since I finished my army service in around 2014. And every year we have training exercises where we spend about a week to a month, depending on the year, um, doing training exercises in our field of work. Our job is to make sure that any fallen soldier or civilian in war or in a battle is we go in and we make sure that they're brought back. So we don't leave anybody behind even after they've been killed. And that's kind of our mission. And so we'll go into some of the most complicated situations and situations where it's total chaos and it's still extremely dangerous. And there's a lot of moving parts and there's the medical part of it. And people are, are extracting the wounded. And our job is to extract those who have been killed. And so because of that, I, we kind of always felt like we're never going to actually have to do what we have to do. Like, this is just, you know, just in case apocalyptic zombies come and, and take over the earth. So that was kind of the feeling for the past many years. That's the truth. We've been training for eight years and haven't done a thing. Wow. And the same thing happened on October 7th. I was in shul with my family during Hakafot, during celebrating Simchat Torah, the holiday. And we're singing and dancing and there's rumors flying around and people start getting nervous, like what's going on? And people talk about a terrorist attack. And you know, when, when in Israel we say a terrorist attack, we think 
you know, at worst 15 people, 20 people are killed like that. That's terrible. You know, that's unbelievably unfathomable. And, um, you know, you see people coming out of shul talking about, you know, Hamas has taken over certain parts of Southern Israel. And it's just like so strange. And we kept on saying like, I won't get called up because I only get called up in like the worst case, you know, that'll never happen, which is probably not the smartest thing to say to people. (laughs) because <laughs> then in the middle of the third akafa i actually went home got my phone my in-laws were here tr- from the states they don't really know what to do there were rockets kind of all over israel we're quite far from gaza but we could still hear the booms and after hearing what was going on i decided to go home tell my parents okay my in-laws okay there's something's going on there's a war it's really bad here's the safe room. Let's just stay inside just in case. And honestly, I grabbed my phone and went back to shul because it's like, what are we going to do? I'm just going to sit at home all day. Um, and, and I went back to shul to, to continue a kafot. Maybe after like 15 minutes, got the phone call that I was going to get called up. <clears throat> and um, from there, it's like, okay, what do I do? Do I bring... 10 pairs of underwear? Do I bring one pair of underwear? Like, like such an I... unpredictability. And you, until this point, you have never done any mission to any scale for this type of work of like the aftermath. Have you ever done any sort of mission like that? No, no. I was a regular paratrooper in the army, infantry soldier. So we had our own missions then, but nothing close to this, nothing similar to this. And ever since I've been in reserve duty, it's all just been training. And, and we always believed it was always just going to be right. training. So that beginning was just like so unknown, right? So it's like, how do I say goodbye to my family? Like, am I like, see if for a month, am I going into war right now? Am I going to a base to wait for a few days? Like nobody knew a thing. And so that was like a really, like, it was weird, you know, what you have the logistics, you also have the like goodbyes and it's just this, you also don't know, am I rushing? Do I have to be out in the next 10 minutes? Do I have a few hours? Like, you know, nothing. Just There's nothing. no way to know how to respond or how to prepare. It's like <laughs> human beings tend to not want like unknowns. <laughs> and this is like compounded unknowns. Right. Am I going into danger? Am I not going into danger? Like what's what's happening? And I think that's hard, not just for me, but like for my family, you know, I have three kids, a five, three and a one-year-old. My five-year-old saw the rockets, heard the booms, asked me on my way home from school, what's going on? I said, there's a war. She's like, what's a war? <laughs> like when people are fighting, she's like, well, why can't they just use their words? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> She says, who are you fighting against? I say, the Hamas. I say, why can't the Hamasim just use their words? You know, like, it's so innocent. You realize, like, you have no idea how to explain to people, to kids, like, people are trying to kill each other over here. (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah. So that was kind of the the call up. And then I get in my car, and I just remember the adrenaline pumping. You know, adrenaline was so high. It was Shabbat, and I had no gas. And I'm like... I don't think I've ever looked for a gas station on Shabbat. Are there gas stations open? Mm-hmm. I know that there's some Shabbat gas stations that say like Sagur Shabbat. That means that some of them must be Patuach Shabbat. Some of them must be open. <laughs> some of them say they're closed. You know, it's like things I never had to ask myself, you know. 
And as a religious Jew, you start asking yourself, what am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? Like, okay, I'm on the drive. Can I turn on the radio? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, I don't have, right? As religious Jews, we're only allowed to break Shabbat if it's for potential life-saving issues, right? So on the one hand, me getting in the car, filling up my gas and going is no question life-saving. Calling up my friend who also lives in my town, who's in the same unit and like, can I take you? Yeah, that's all fine. But like, I don't need to hear the news. This is like the most important day of all of Israel's history to, to listen to the news. But like, do I really need to be? Those kind of questions. Are, are yeah, there were a your... thousand of those along the last 120 days. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. But this was just so, you know, so soon. So, so recent. And I got to base, I got to the main army base where like all our logistics is, all, all our equipment is. And even then you're waiting around getting your gear. Like people are watching the news. Not everybody's religious. Like you kind of want to, it's like on Yom Kippur when the world series is on and you're like, <laughs> I want to know, but I'm not supposed to. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. So, so it's a lot of that. And that goes back to the whole, you know, unknown of like, as people, we want to feel like we understand what's going on. And as the numbers just go up from 50 people who are killed to 100 to 200 to 300, you start saying like, it can't get any more than that, right? This can't get any worse. And to this day, I think we're finding out more and more that like whatever we thought, it's worse, which is, which is crazy and it's very difficult. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, that was kind of the first day, you know, we were just getting our equipment and already the first night we were on our way down South to the area of Kfar Aza, which is one of the kibbutzim that a third of the population was wiped out essentially. And we were already going down there on the first night to do our job. Do you remember like what it felt like as you're like, you're driving down and then those first, <laughs> uh, you probably can't unremember some of the images that you saw when you got there but do you remember what the experience was like going down and then your first hours there yeah or was uh, or is it like just one big blur and it's like you can't even remember no no it's been 120 days but there's just certain times that i feel like i can't forget like i feel the feelings i have the images it was actually very interesting I went back to Kfar Aza three months later after our mission. We, we haven't really talked about what we did there, but like I remembered how to get from place to place within the Kfar. I'd been there once in my life and I there was like a, a roadmap in my head of the place. And I'm not good at directions regularly. How do I even remember how to get there and all these places? Because these, these memories are totally engraved. So, I mean, just the feeling of going down there, remembering that, that we're about to do something that's gonna be tough, that's gonna be hard, not really knowing what we're gonna be doing, what we're gonna be seeing. Um, and I, I actually made a video um, on the way down, just saying, hey guys, uh, we're about to go down to an extremely difficult mission try and add some light, do something good. Yes. Um, you, I don't know if you remember that yes, video. I do. I was going to ask about that. that exactly. That stuff. Yeah. So that started kind of 
a whole nother world for me, which is this, you know, social media person, which I was not before. Um, and that kind of blew up, but I didn't know that at the time. Honestly, that was a video made for my family. Like I didn't even think to send it to the world. And we went down and as we were going down, we were singing songs. We were fully aware of how, how serious this was and how much we're going to need God's help on this. And we were singing songs of, of faith during tough times. And it was very clear how grim this was going to be. And as you're going down, it's just like, it was out of a movie. It was totally out of a movie. Smoke everywhere. And you're going down a road, which just, it, the only thing I can explain is, is like watching these end of the world movies. Of apocalyptic. Very apocalyptic. Cars on the side of the road. And you just see the aftermath. And we're talking like, you're driving for about 20, 25 minutes seeing this apocalypse. Like it's not a one, you know, when you think terrorist attack, you think one location. Here you're driving for 15 minutes and you just see cars and cars and cars and cars on the side of the road. And you're trying to figure out what happened here. And and yeah. And at this point, is fear registering? No. <laughs> I don't think there was really any fear in any of my missions that we had. That's the truth. Wow. Yeah. You just, you, you know that you have a job to do. You also, because we're not really in charge of the safety, we're all combat soldiers, right? We are all trained to go into battle. We're all post-combat. So we all know what to do just in case, but we always have 360 around us, somebody protecting us. So because of that, we're just focused on what we have to do. Uh-huh. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, so before we get into some of the things of what your responsibilities were and how you sort of manage that, you know, internally, yeah. I'm, you're, what's the name of the unit? Can you say what the name of the unit is? Yeah, it's called Yasar, which is Yechidat Srika. Technically, it means the scanning unit. And that's because most of the time, our main purpose is to actually go into difficult battlefields. And if there's, God forbid, an explosion or something, so our job is kind of like, searching and scanning the field for any of the things that we need to collect any of the fallen soldiers so i'm curious if there's a particular way again if you're able to share how they prepare a unit like yours because you have a different experience not easier or harder but different experience <laughs> than a different you know combat soldier in a different unit who maybe was there three hours before you is there a particular way that they prepare your unit for what you're job is going to be like you said going into the aftermath of an explosion or a battle and you know looking for bodies and yeah and dealing with that yeah so that's it's exactly what we do i was telling you about how we have training drills pretty much every single year a week up to a month every single year and that's what we do there are you know there are dummies that they use and there are burnt tanks that they use and all kinds of different situations and destroyed houses and we're training for all these things. So honestly, there's nothing that we did that I said to myself, wow, let me take that back. There are definitely <laughs> things that I wasn't prepared for. There are definitely things that were way more complicated and difficult than I could have imagined. But in terms of the actual work that had to be done, everything that we did, we had prepared for in the past. Do they also prepare you like psychologically? Yeah, so actually it turned out really well. The year before, the, the the training drill we had before this 
we actually had a few mental health professionals come in and give us kind of like workshops because we talk about right PTSD a lot, obviously, but we talk about PTSD, not just something that happens after a traumatic event, but PTSD as something that you can help, I don't want to say prevent, but minimize for when you, before you go into a certain traumatic event, during the traumatic event, and after the traumatic event, and giving us the control to say, there are things you can do before, during, and after an event that can help you. And I thought that that was really cool. It was one of the only times that an army person came in and had to speak. And I was like, wow, this was really good. Wow. Um, yeah. And we just talked about like breathing beforehand and taking a couple moments beforehand and keeping always in your mind, I can get through anything as long as I know it's temporary. And I'm saying to myself like, okay, this is something I can handle for a certain amount of time. Right. And as long as I know it's for a certain amount of time and there's another, you know, there's a life after the trauma there's a life before the trauma and the trauma is going to suck. Um, and that was my mindset going in. And I can even tell you, we literally had, I know this sounds crazy, but before we dealt with any of the bodies, we literally like had a huddle, the team of five guys. And we just took like three deep breaths and we were just like, this is going to suck. And we just breathed and I, we would never have done that if it wasn't for this wow. training exercise that we did before. I love that. That's yeah. And, and to people listening, like I know we're talking about <laughs> insane circumstances yet. I think that's actually is very practical for all sorts of things. Like yes, the breathing, the preparing in the moment. And also saying that it sucks is like, I think is very powerful because some people fall into the trap. Like they have to convince themselves that it doesn't suck in order to do it. No, you have to call a spade a spade. Like, this is going to suck. And right. I could handle it. And you're almost like compartmentalizing it. Like there's an end. Like if you look at things that almost that have no end, then who knows how long and it's so much and there's so many bodies. And I don't know how long it's gonna when you have like a mile marker or something that okay, it ends, and then okay, then another end, and then another end. I really that's Wow, which great. is why, in a way, I'm less, much less worried for my unit. My unit does missions. We go in, we go out. We go in, we go out. And yes, we do traumatic things. We do crazy things, but it's all for a certain amount of time, and we know that coming in. I'm more worried about the soldiers who have been in for 80 days, for 90 days straight, who have been in this high pressure, high anxiety mode for endless amount of time without any end in sight. And I'm much more worried about them than I am about us just because I know that they have that time of it's going to be over and I just have to get through it is much more complicated for them. It's like open-ended and their bodies or systems don't never really have the opportunity to like come down. Mm -hmm. I imagine exactly. that during when you did come back and you went back and forth, like almost like did your, how did your body... Did you like, just like, like, right. So, so, so for you to understand what was going on with my body, when we finished a mission, you have to understand what's going on in Israel. When I finished a mission, because I would come out of total hell. Okay. I don't have to get into the gory details, but all the gory details you can imagine. And I would come out of that 
and there would be barbecues on the highways, on the sides of highways with music blasting and drum circles and people singing and free food everywhere. And it's like, you're literally going from the most terrible place on earth and 15 minute drive away is just total joy and food and comfort and love and singing and like, you're you're almost those people on the sides of the highway they're giving you that opportunity to just you know decompress from all of it you're saying that yeah. stuff was not just for the sake of doing a dance that was like essential almost they had no idea yeah they had no idea what they were doing for us but they were well i'll ask you an honest question did it feel like funny doing that if you're coming from hell on earth like how could no, i it- it's what it's what we needed. First of all, food. After every mission that we had, and I know people have people think that this is a bit strange when you're dealing with with bodies. You think you'd lose your appetite or something. I would get so hungry. It's so hungry. You know, you're going through this emotional adrenaline rush. You're working physically hard. I think that's a lot of people don't necessarily reason realize what we're doing is extremely physically difficult. And there were times where I was lifting up stretchers above my head, 250 pounds, 300 pounds, people with gear, soldiers, and you do it over and over and over and over again. It's exhausting. So it's physically exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. It's emotionally exhausting. And you get out and like massive hamburgers everywhere, you know, people singing. And and the songs are all connected. It's not a disconnect. It's not a... We don't understand what's going on over there. Let's just close our eyes and be like, right? right? It's like, we understand how crappy it is over there. Let's make it as good as we can over here. Right. You know? Yeah. Now, okay, we don't have to get gory or sensationalizer. But can you give people just a, like a little bit of an idea of like, what were some of the things on a day-to-day, like, like you started mentioning about lifting stretches, but give a little bit of a picture for people. So our our first mission was Kfar Aza. We go into Kfar Aza, which was a town that was very decimated. And all the rumors that have gone around about what happened there, we saw. And um, there's a truck. And unfortunately, there's there's bodies everywhere. And our job was to deal with the, um, there's like a student dorms area that got hit really bad because it's on the border with, it's on the community border, which is first line of sight to Gaza. And as we go there, it's just bagging all these bodies up, which is not always so easy, depending on what, you know, what the status is and putting them on stretchers, numbering them. There was this woman in Faraza. I don't know who she is, but she's amazing who lived there and is going identifying person by person though that's this guy that's this woman and it's like how and with such just cold like just such focus no emotion just oh that's this family that's this family and it's like how are you doing i'm getting emotional i don't even know these people the hardest part by far anybody will tell you of our job is the smells. The smell is very, very difficult to deal with. 
And we're just trying to give these people a last honor and getting them onto the stretchers. When we got there, there was press everywhere. It was the first day they had let. They were there like right, right in your face? Like taking pictures, videos. There's a picture of me on CNN shoving a reporter out of the way. One hand on the stretcher, one hand going like this, like get the out of my way, I don't have a job to do. And there was a lot of anger there. And it was only till later did I realize how important it was that the press was there because it wasn't till then that the international media really had any clue what had happened in Israel. And suddenly you see the headlines and the pictures and all the pictures, Fox News, CNN, it's all pictures of my unit with the masks on and everything. And I have those pictures. And so, yes, looking back, it was good that they were there. It was very frustrating when they were there because they were literally in our way. There was a hundred of them. Right. But so that was that was like your first mission. If I remember, I saw one part where you went in, I think maybe more recently, and there was a grenade. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, for sure. So a few a few interesting stories that happened to me in Kfar Aza. There were rockets flying during this whole time. It was still like a very, we didn't know where the terrorists were. There were areas of Kfar Aza we weren't even allowed to go to because they hadn't been cleared yet. And there were rockets being fired towards us. And the, the siren gives us, you know, 10 seconds, maybe 12 seconds, not even. So the siren goes off and we run into a room, into a house. And in the house is a, a, a dead uh, terrorist. And the terrorist is holding a grenade. Now, when that grenade is in his hands, you have no idea. Did he pull the pin already? And it's just, if you move his hand, it could go off. You don't want to deal with any of that. So we run in, my friend yells, Ramon, grenade. And we run out within a minute, that grenade was actually blown up. So thank God we got out of there in time. It's just one, like every few minutes, something like that was happening, you know, a huge explosion next to us or rockets were still falling or there was one situation where I, I went to go to the bathroom, right? Things you don't think of. I went to go to the bathroom and now there's no running water. You don't feel comfortable using these people's bathrooms. You're in people's homes. Um, so I went by a tree as Israelis love to do, you know? And I was going by a tree and the siren goes off. Now, you have like 10 seconds I had, I had just started. I didn't have enough time to finish. And I wasn't going to run anywhere because, you know. So I just kind of, as is, put my helmet on, lay down. And I'm just laying there, going like this over my head, trying to finish the job that I had started. It's like, you know, sometimes you just got to laugh. And I think that the truth is, is that if anybody makes inappropriate jokes about everything that we do, it's us. There's a lot of laughing in our unit. We have a lot of fun in our unit between missions, not during the mission, of course, we're all very focused, but we understand that you have to be able to find the humor in, in all of it. 100%. That's, yeah. that's something that I try to do. That's something that a lot of my it's friends- definitely true, true for all of us. Now you said, was there a moment that where you know like up until a certain point it feels like <laughs> surreal was there like a certain moment where it like really like dawned on you like what the hell is actually going on here 
Yeah, I think the drive down, the drive down is when you start to realize the scale, right? Because if you're in a certain place dealing with, you know, a certain, you're like, okay, this is small, but the drive down just makes you realize what is happening here. This is like a whole ap apocalyptical movie. But the truth is, I have to say that when we're in Kfar Aza and we were working, there was no emotions there was no thinking about what's going on in the rest of the country there's no uh, thinking about how grand this was this was just like you have a job to do and the job is very it's very logistical you gotta be able to do your job and just like focus on it um so this actually leads to, to, to a question that yeah. i'm getting this is like i think this affects people who are there people who are not there you know when did you start to realize sort of what you said when news got out and then you start to get exposed to opinions and mm. denying and twisting and like all that mess. And I hesitate to say this out loud, even sometimes it feels that there's the horrible tragedy that's not over yet. And then there's the response or lack of response or whatever you want to call that part. And sometimes I could just speak for myself and I'm curious about for you and for other people who are in Israel or in the army and your unit. Sometimes it feels like that almost hurts more. If again, I hesitate to say that I don't want to sound oh, no. insensitive, but it's like, or, or scarier almost. So when did you start you and your unit, when do you start to realize like how the world is, is seeing this? And then you mentioned anger before, <laughs> um, how do you guys deal with all that? Right. So I'll, I'll give you two different answers. Answer number one is um, we all have our front lines, you know what I mean? And, and you are much more on the front lines of people's opinions and world, uh, world opinion of Israel than we are. And I am much more on the front lines of that than my my Israeli friends are. For the average Israeli soldier, the world could go to hell. It doesn't really matter. We know what we're doing is right. We don't care how big the pro-Palestinian protest in New Jersey is. It just doesn't matter. And in a way that's your battle, not ours. I'm somewhere in the middle where I both belong to the international Jewish community, and I'm on those front lines, especially on social media, and I've gotten tons of hate on social media. Um, and as well, I'm focused and I know what I'm doing is right and I'm not letting it bother me. So it is really painful when I see those things and I try not to let it get bog me down. But I would say that I'm much more bothered by it than the average soldier is. Most soldiers, most Israelis, okay. Yeah, it'd be great if the world liked us a little bit more, but we gotta do what we gotta do. And soldiers, especially soldiers in the middle of war in Gaza, in Gaza, I could tell you if there was like the prime minister of Israel got switched out with another guy, we wouldn't even know about it. You're so disconnected. You're doing your thing there. For us, it's a little different. We're going in and out. So we're both connected to the outside world and connected to what's going on in Gaza. So I'm not going to lie. It hurts. It's painful. And I totally agree with you that for you, that's almost scarier. And also for me, I think it's almost scarier. But I don't think the average Israeli, the average soldier 
cares. <laughs> he really does it. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, when you feel strongly, you're on, you know, to put it simply, you know, there's, there's good and evil. And if you can firmly say that, listen, I'm with good, you might, you, you can shout and yell and cry and scream, but like, I stand for good and I'm going to continue. Right. That's it. Right. You know? Right. And that's kind of how I felt when we went into the missions, we were seeing the extreme evil and then we'd come out and immediately see extreme good. And it was so like the extremes were so next to each other. were so clear. It was just, it right. was an intense extreme evil and extreme good. Right. So speaking of good, whether yeah. you knew it was going to happen or not, but there was this like explosion, no pun intended there, of really positive energy coming through from that, you know, from that very first video that you posted. If people don't know it, you, I'm sure you can easily find it. Um, and that sort of like evolved. And, you know, I, there's lots of people who were, I guess, in, inspired and motivated. So tell us a little about the, like the evolution of that, but also like in a way, it, it's a little bit of like a, I don't know if it's a compartmentalization is like on one hand, here's hell. And the other hand, here's let's be positive and let's, you know, energy and like, so the right. the, the the person behind it <laughs> i'm curious to hear sure. the inner working uh, yeah so like you said it it came a little bit out of nowhere for me um and i just put out those first few videos of like hey guys let's just do something good because i really felt like the american supporting israel world was so confused and so scared and did not know what to do like what can we do you know we said we're going to send money we're going to send gear we're going to daven we're going to do some prayers but like then what you know so i started giving out these little missions like here's ways you can help you know here's the messages lessons that i've learned from the war and for what i'm doing and and if it's helped me it can, it can also help you um so I kind of started by doing it for you guys. And in the end, it actually ended up the opposite where you guys were giving me so much koach, so much strength. So I've been posting on my Facebook and on Instagram, Israel with Arki. You guys are welcome to go check it out. And the video started out as like things, ways you guys can help. But the amount of um, meaning that I get from everybody messaging, you know, we're, we're with you and I can't imagine what you're doing. And thank you so much for the messages. It's given me strength. And it's kind of been like, I have been able to lean on that as the source of good in my life to escape the craziness of the army. And like you talk about social media is not real life. Well, I needed it to be not real life. I needed it to be that escape. And I just noticed people were just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and everything was just so terrible and depressing and sad. It's like, and I do the most crazy things. I have all of the content for the most depressing, sad page I could possibly imagine. And I was like, we don't need another one of that. Is that really what the Jewish people right need, need right now? Like, no, we need to put a smile on, we need to make a joke, we need to rock the house on Shabbat and have wonderful tefillot together. We need unity, we need meaning, we need light. And so I was like, okay, let me see what I can do to try and bring that out. And again, the more I was trying to help you guys, the more I felt you guys were helping me. So that's a very, and that's a very powerful lesson on even on a, like a much smaller scale. 
Like sometimes we're doing things and then we get from putting in. It's a really, really powerful thing. I think now a lot of people are coming to Israel, right? On these missions, right? And the missions are all about giving chizuk, giving strength. And like, ask anybody who comes back from they're like, we gave a little bit, but we got (laughs) a ton. And I think that's- Yeah, that is powerful. I know we're going to run up against the clock soon. There's a couple more, I think, really valuable things. And you mentioned earlier about kids. And yeah. I'm sure it's spoken more in Israel or in certain circles. It should not be underestimated. You know, you have the people on the front lines, right in the epicenter. Then you have all the families mm-hmm. and the wives and the kids and the parents and the brothers and the sisters. So, I mean, I guess to whatever level you're comfortable talking about, like how... And and everyone I'm sure makes mis- missteps because I don't know if there's a right or a wrong way. How do you communicate with family? How do you communicate with kids on like what's going on when you know to the to a regular logical person like this this doesn't make this you know it's hard to wrap your head head around it. Then let alone to ask a, a seven year old to to wrap like so what has that been like? Right. Um, so hey, I, I think you're right that every soldier what's on their mind is what they're doing and their mission and whether the house and the family are okay. Like that, that's what we care about. And everybody coming into Israel was asking, how can we help you? Can we make barbecues? And we're like, you want to help me? Go make sure that my wife and kids have a barbecue. You know what I mean? Like, that's what we really want. That's what we really need. And the truth is that their battle at home is so much harder than the battle that we had to fight. And that's the truth. And I'm saying that as somebody who's done crazy things and had, you know, missions in Gaza. And we come back and the difference between our house and everything taken care of or having to, you know, come back and step up, it's huge. It's huge. So when it comes to communicating just the thanks and the appreciation for what the wives and the kids are doing, it's first and foremost that they're a hundred percent in this just as much as we are. That's the truth. And for a kid, especially my kids who are young to see Abba's here, Abba's not here. Abba went to the army. Why? I'll tell you a story. My, my son kept on asking, he's three years old. He said, why do we need Abba? Why do we need Abba? And my wife did not understand. Like, how do I answer that question? Why do we need Abba? She was just so confused. And he asked that for weeks. And she was like, you know, we love Abba. He's really important. Why do we need Abba? And at some point she realized he wasn't asking, why do we need Abba? Why does the army need Abba? You know what I mean? Like he he just doesn't understand. Why does the army need to take Abba from me? Like, uh, I don't get it. And it's still hard. It's still hard. And they put out this beautiful book, um, I don't know if you can get your hands on it. I don't know what your level of Hebrew is. What's the book called? Do you remember? Mishpacha B'Miluim, Family and Miluim. And it literally is our family's story and every family's story in child book form. And That's it's amazing. so sweet. And it's about nightmares that the kids are having. And it's about, you know, my daughter had to move in with, with the other boys to sleep in their room. And like, they feel it. And each kid... You have to approach each kid with what they can handle and explain it to them on their level, but they're never really going to understand. Just like you said, we're barely understanding it. Um, But in the end of the day, you have to approach it very softly, very gently. Um, But the lesson I think is super important, which is, you know, 
we, for the most of our lives, care about ourselves and what's going on with ourselves. And for a few months, our family is going to go through hell because we care about what's going on with our people, with our nation. We have a sense of responsibility. We have an obligation to our nation and to our people. And that's something that I love that my oldest daughter will probably remember when her Abba went off to war for her people. And so it's it's kind of uplifting. It's kind of beautiful. It's kind of like the reason we made Aliyah, the reason we came here is jury duty on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. That is, if only we, more human beings, learn to think outside of themselves. And yeah. we would yeah. be in a better place. One last thing before we sign off. Because I know recently, I think I saw you post about this, about the transition. Mm-hmm. Now, you said, like you said earlier, this is going to be your first full week, you know, not there. And I think you I think you even mentioned like there was like a mental health day or something yeah. in, in the army. So just in our last couple of minutes, can you speak about like what's the transition like and, and how do the maybe what's something that you saw? It sounds like you had a great experience earlier on preparing, you know, going in. I'm curious yeah. how they prepare going out for this transition. Yeah. So I have to give the army so much credit, so much, so much credit, because it's not just before, it's also during, because after every single mission, even at 3 a.m. and you're exhausted and you smell like death, literally, and you're so done with your day, you have to sit and have a, I don't know what you want to call it, a decompress, a processing conversation where every person talks about what they saw, what they did. And you go around the room, every single person, what they saw. Every single day? Every single mission after every single mission. So yeah, we don't have missions every single day, thank God. Um, But when you do something serious, you come back. What did we do? What did we see? And so you processed before, you processed immediately after. And now we're in the stages of processing closure wise. And um, we did a bunch of activities. I'll give you an example. We made a timeline of everything that happened in the war. And we're each given two stickers, two green stickers, four stickers, two green stickers and two red stickers. We had to put two green stickers on something that was a very um, event that left me happy and uplifted and something that was remarkable Um, for good and then two things that were extremely challenging for me and you put a sticker on where that happened and it's very fascinating to see everybody's stickers kind of were in the same areas the greens were in the same area the reds were in the same area and we're just processing and so we we took literally a week tomorrow I'm going to um, the Waldorf Astoria and we're doing a morning with the wives of our entire unit husbands and wives how to get back into, you know, family life. I will tell you, I think even more so for soldiers who have been in Gaza this whole time and haven't had running water and have been peeing on the floor and eating ramen noodles and not living a normal life for 90, 100, 120 days, their transition is going to be the hardest part of this. (laughs) Like, For many soldiers, I think it's harder to be back than it is to be there. And I kind of get why. There's a simplicity to life in the army. You don't have to think. You do what you're told. I heard somebody say, 
this was the only time in my life I had one responsibility, right? <laughs> Everything else doesn't matter, right? And, and to go from that to real life, which is messy and complicated and so many things going on and getting adjusted, it's a process. And it's a process that you go through with the army's help, but it's a process you're going to go through with your wife. And it's a process you're going to go with your kids. It's a process you're going to go with yourself. And the only hope is, is that every single soldier and every single person, when they go through these things, take those processes seriously. And it could take a while and that's okay. You know, as long as you're kind of, you're taking that, that process seriously. And we are, we say that in our unit, our mental health is our ammunition. You come into a battle not prepared here, you're coming in without bullets. Wow. Yeah. That is a powerful statement. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so, so much. For those that, so you mentioned if people want to like hear more, they want to hear videos, whether, or they want to hear about your, the, the tour guide, Israel with Arky, or if they, I don't know, they just want to hear more, where would you direct them? Yeah, so I, I haven't yet done this, but I will be starting to give tours down south of the areas that were affected. Go to Kfar Aza. I think that for people to hear from somebody who was actually there is really connecting. And to, for me to give my firsthand account is really powerful for them. What they don't realize is that it's also really healing for me. <laughs> you know, I'm processing. So I'm going to be offering and already have started offering tours of the South. I anyways give tours, you know, generally more kid-friendly, family-friendly, but if parents are coming without their kids or older kids, I am giving those kind of tours and also giving regular tours. And so you can find out about that, IsraelWithArchy.com, IsraelWithArchy on Facebook, IsraelWithArchy on Instagram. You type in IsraelWithArchy, A-R-K-Y, you'll find me. And hopefully, please God, I will actually be coming to the States at some point. I would love to start some sort of speaking tour where I will kind of like what we just did, you know, talk yeah. about things that I learned, things that you guys can learn from lessons that I experienced in Gaza and the last, you know, the last period of time. I think they'll be very powerful, very, very meaningful and very useful. So, yeah. Thank you so much. And you. You know, maybe another time we'll talk about, you know, being a Please God. Thank you so much for having me.